Hi and welcome to Headline Talks, our podcast on European news coverage and those at the heart of it. My name is Marco Cassis. I'm the head of research at Headline News Facilities Productions in Brussels. I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome Dusan Gajic to our studio. Dusan is the Europe correspondent of the Serbian public broadcaster RTS. He is chief editor of Southeast Europe TV Exchanges, also known as CTV, and a documentary di- director and producer. Dusan, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I thought it would be a good idea to start this podcast today on the Western Balkans and their relationship with Europe from the viewpoints of your wonderful documentary, The Graduates, which was published last year and which will air next week in Serbia at the time of the recording of this podcast. Could you tell our listeners what that documentary is about? Yes, indeed. Uh, the documentary, The Graduates, came out last year. Uh, we've shown it uh, on a number of special projections and screenings in uh, Brussels here, also in other places in Europe and the United States. And uh, very soon it should have a TV premiere in Serbia. And the documentary is trying to offer a critical overview of the history of Serbia and the Balkans through the prism of a school generation, my school generation, that graduated from the high school in 1989, the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I decided to go back to my classroom to talk about the history of this part of the world because not because I, I, I thought that people in my classroom were something exceptional, but mainly because of this coincidence that I realized that we graduated from the high school and were getting ready for our adult and professional life at the time of the big major geopolitical change in Europe. So the horizons were opening in this part of the world. The Eastern Europe was liberating itself from the Iron Curtain and so on. But then I realized also that the path of Serbia was somewhat different and that 30 years and plus later we have a problem there. The country is not part of the EU. It's not sure even if it wants to be. Where does it belong in terms of geopolitics and values? And we, again today, although the war seems like an impossible, a new war in that part of the world seems like an impossible or very distant prospect, we speak about tensions and conflicts. So I thought it would be a good idea to retrace and to understand what this history and to understand what went wrong by speaking to people who lived those 30 years, not with experts and historians, but with a generation that left it, that felt uh, all the consequences of this history on its own skin wonderful idea to capture the zeitgeist of that particular time. How did people respond when you told them you were making the film, your schoolmates from back then? They were mostly reacted enthusiastically. Uh, I mean, they were motivated to participate. I'm not sure that uh, they captured immediately what it was um, about. They probably thought it's a portrait of a generation and then thought, well, it's our generation, so why not? Let's participate. But in a way, it is. Uh, the film, it is about uh, that as well, but it's mainly actually a portrait of a society. 
and it tells a story of evolution of uh, one society that was uh, at the crossroad in uh, 89, 90, beginning of the 90s. And as most of the people would agree, I mean, from the movie, society that hasn't chosen the best path and is still somehow nowadays a prisoner of some wrong choices that were made back at that time. And the consequences of this history are still visible today. Well, at one point in your documentary, you talk about the fact that you started in Brussels as a correspondent almost 20 years ago. And when you started, you thought you would be covering Serbia's accession process to the EU. How do you analyze what went wrong also with the experience of making this film? Well, exactly. It shows how certain aspirations, generational aspirations, have not been fulfilled. Because back in the 90s, in the worst decade in the, in the recent history for the Balkans, for Serbia, somehow people of my generation thought that better future is really close. And the only thing we needed to do back at the time is to change the autocratic warmongering regime of Slobodan Milosevic, uh, former president of Serbia and what was then called Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, but in reality it was just the Union of Serbia and Montenegro. So just to change and to join the normal world. And that happened in, in 2000, but since we spent 23 years on our path to Europe, and still today in 2023, we are not sure if that path will, I mean, if we will ever arrive to the destination. So why is that? Well, partly it's because actually the burden of the history was too heavy probably in Serbia and uh, the consecutive governments failed to, to face some realities, to solve some issues. You know, it started with the question of dealing with the war crimes, the legacy of the conflict and the war, then some unresolved constitutional issues like relations with Montenegro and most importantly with Kosovo, which is still not resolved and we are still talking about that. So objectively, the path of Serbia was probably more complicated and more difficult than in case of some other post-communist countries. Because when you look at the map of Europe, Serbia is surrounded by EU member states, uh, uh, on the north, the east, the west and the south, you have countries like Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Croatia, Greece, and so on. They are all part of the European Union, and Serbia, as I said, is not even sure if it still wants to be, uh, become a member of the EU. But you cannot really understand this without considering also the short-sighted policy of the European Union, which has not necessarily over the course of, of all those years responded adequately to the European, genuine European aspirations of those countries. And, well, here we are now in the 2023, and that question remains still open. Now, of course, when you speak to people here, people who are not involved with politics, but uh, what we call uh, regular citizens, uh, Belgians or German, French, and so on. What is striking for me is two perceptions that are very interesting, actually. On one hand, I see that people actually don't even know if 
very often, don't even know if Serbia and uh, other countries from this part, from the Balkans, if they are members of the EU or not. They are not even sure, because there is a blur blurred vision of Eastern, Southeastern Europe. So, you know, if Serbia is in or out, that's not even clear. So, you know, how much people actually know about Europe. On the other hand, you see that those who know that country is not still part of the EU, for them somehow they, they don't see why actually would Balkan countries have necessarily to be member states. Uh, perception that has changed, do you think? No, I think that perception has to do with, you know, the, the image from the years of war, the perception that these problematic countries that would import only and bring only troubles to the European Union and the membership of five, six uh, small countries, relatively poor with, you know, unsecure democracies would perhaps weaken European Union. And then, you know, when, when you see that this hesitancy on the side of European Union about what to do with this region, which is, you know, let's not forget the map, it's inside the European Union, it's an enclave inside the European Union, this hesitancy actually made things worse. But still people don't feel that it's European responsibility to deal with this, and they don't get why, you know, we should offer membership to everybody. People there should, you know, sort out their problems, you know, because it's important for them. They should clean their house and put it in order. And then maybe we'll see if everything fine, you know, call us and we'll see if we have some places left. That, of course, puts into sharp focus that other big relationship that Serbia has with Russia. Serbian Prime Minister Anna Brnabic recently said that Serbia's refusal to impose sanctions on Russia remains the main obstacle to speedier accession bids to the EU. Is it logical or surprising to you that this has come almost a very, that Serbia is almost in a position where it has to choose between either wanting to go into the EU or becoming closer to Russia? That, that contrast seems like it's more stark than ever now with the war in Ukraine. Do you think that the war in Ukraine changed a lot in the direction that Serbia looks into for its future? Yes, absolutely. I think that the war in Ukraine was a, was a trigger for many things and many different processes. In the Balkans, of course, uh, we see how much Europe has changed. And there are two things that are obvious when it comes to the Balkans and also to a wider question of EU enlargement, which is again on the table. And we see that we speak intensively these days about membership of the Ukraine in the European Union. So it brought home somehow this idea that EU enlargement is something that cannot be forgotten because, you know, there are different troubles potentially that can come with it but we cannot just neglect it and park it somewhere it's not going to go away we have to deal with it and in that sense in case of the balkans it has become more obvious that europe needs to deal with this region and it simply cannot deal more effectively 
there is no more effective tool than the perspective of EU membership, which some people in some member states especially refuse to accept still, I am afraid. But there is a growing awareness that something needs to be done and that this European perspective or perspective of membership should be much more concrete. And we see statements from Germany and from other countries that go into into this direction. When it comes to Serbia, the war in Ukraine was a moment when people there felt like prompted to choose sides. And in case of Serbia, and that's what I called Serbian exception, it was more difficult to choose sides because of the history and because of the bad politics in the country. So nowadays Serbia gets negative coverage as a Russian ally, some, uh, uh, you know, a country in Europe, EU candidate country surrounded by European Union, but a country that cannot align with Europe and is not an ally of Europe in this major geopolitical moment. But the reason for for this and this pro-Russian sentiment is actually not a pro-Russian sentiment, it's more anti-Western resentment, which was nurtured by politicians, by the government, for various reasons. Maybe we don't have time to speak about all that, but it's also a consequence of a disappointment in the European membership, because people there don't believe that membership is a real perspective, And they feel or they came to believe that Europe failed their aspirations to fulfill their aspirations and also that it didn't support Serbia in any of the major issues related to status of Kosovo and other consequences of the war. So this cocktail of different things makes this uh, so-called pro-Russian sentiment in Serbia And uh, I think it's bad for Serbia, of course, first of all. But it's also not good for Europe, because it's a reminder that Europe was not able to be a dominant geopolitical player on its own continent and uh, a value setter and rule setter on its own continent. So I think because of this situation, Serbia should not be just written off as a Russian ally. But uh, the the causes of this should be treated. That's tremendously interesting. It makes me wonder how you, as a Serbian correspondent, navigate reporting on these topics. For example, last week, the week before this was recorded, Zelensky visited Brussels and plead for a quick accession process of Ukraine to the EU. How do you report on all that when you're reporting for, for Serbian television? When it comes to my reporting from here, the rule is sticking to the facts. So the interpretations of the facts and the comments in the media in Serbia, I leave it to others. And then, you know, we can speak about that as well. But I must say it is not too difficult to report about European positions on the war in Ukraine and the Russian aggression and sanctions against Russia. It's what it is, and my duty is to, you know, report it as it is. When I step out of my reporter's role, when I do a documentary like this one, or when I speak in a podcast with you, 
then I allow myself to um, express certain views and to analyze the Serbian politics and Serbia media scene. And I think, you know, it's pretty catastrophic in a way, uh, because you see a lot of disinformation, a lot of fake news, as they say, about the war in Ukraine. And you see that the, the public is fed with a lot of anti-EU narrative that comes from tabloid sensationalist press there, also from politics, the government, but also good part of the opposition. So that explains the public mood there. But again, when it comes to reporting facts, facts and facts. What I found very poignant in the introduction to your documentary, you wrote about all this. The war in Ukraine revealed a deep crisis of Serbia's identity. Although a candidate for EU membership, Serbia is unable to see things as the rest of the continent. Do you think that Serbia remains an exception, as you've said, in the Balkans? And do you think it will continue to be as such? For the moment, Serbia remains exception in that sense. And as we already uh, mentioned, the war in Ukraine was a moment that made this really obvious and uh, expose this, what I call this crisis of identity and Serbian exceptionalism. And as I try to explain, it has to do with the history, with the history of the Yugoslav wars. It has to do with politics. I think, you know, politicians in Serbia realize that EU membership may be a distant goal, but that in the meantime, Europe and Brussels can serve as a very convenient scapegoat and that Europe bashing can bring easy points. Uh, you know, you score political points because you need to have someone who is treating you unfairly and you need an adversary that you are, you know, a big adversary sometimes that you are successful in dealing with uh, resisting pressures that come abroad. You know, it comes from the populist textbook and it's very frequently applied. And then also, I think, since Serbia is in the process of enlargement and accession negotiations, then Brussels, other member states and uh, European Commission, they ha potentially have a big influence and they could be seen as an arbiter of your success. And if you want to be in strong position at home, you don't want someone else to be arbiter of your success. You don't want to your, your political standing at home to be dependent on what European Commission says, what the European members of Parliament say, and so on and so on. So you want to discredit them and to say, you know, they're biased, they're hypocrites, and so on. So you are, you know, master of your own domestic narratives. So that's what happens there. And that's what explains very low support for EU membership, historically low support for European membership, plus disappointment. Look, I've been covering this process for 20 years. So how can you have a credible process of negotiation that lasts 20 years. So, you know, to conclude on, on this point, I think the changes are possible. But the offer of EU membership by the EU should 
become more credible. The EU, if it wants to not to lose Serbia and the Balkans, and it would be bad to lose a region inside European Union, needs to put a more credible offer on the table, offer of membership, and Serbia on its side needs to reinvent its attitude to Europe to sort of recalibrate its understanding of what the vital national interests are, and then the change. But, you know, this is a best-case scenario. We'll see what happens. What is encouraging, in a way, is that people nowadays in Brussels, here in the corridors, in uh, capitals, try to think out of the box and to perhaps put some creative solutions on the table. That may go in the direction of membership for Balkan countries with some derogations. So that would be not full membership as we know it, but something like membership without veto rights for those new member states, without commissioners and and some other things that could reassure other member states, skeptical member states, that bringing in those countries would not be at the cost of some sort of institutional paralysis of Europe and things like that. And I think these initiatives need to be supported and they need to uh, get a very concrete form soon. Also, because then the ball would be in the court of politicians in the region and politicians in Serbia, because then this could, you know, credible EU offer would mean that it's up to them to deliver. And if there is no progress, it's because they don't work on it. Otherwise, they can always blame someone else and the countries will remain stuck. Tremendously interesting. Thank you. It will be interesting to see how that develops. But when we're talking about the region, you've already touched upon this, that there are increasing tensions. Kosovo and President Fiosa Osmani recently told the British newspaper The Telegraph that mercenaries from the, the Wagner Group are working with Serbian paramilitaries to smuggle weapons and unmarked military uniforms into Kosovo to secretly lay the groundwork for a potential hybrid attack by Serbia to grab Kosovan territory. Have you heard similar reports? Well, you can feel the, the, the heat in the recent months in that part of the region. And you could tell, judging on, the, on, on what happens on the ground and on the statements and news reports, that something is happening. And what is happening, actually, is very strong diplomatic effort to well, if not resolve definitely the dispute between Serbia and Kosovo, at least to enter a completely different phase. So there is a paper on the table, which is still not public, but it's discussed uh, between diplomats, Brussels, Belgrade and Pristina, a paper that was first presented as a Franco-German paper to normalize relations between Kosovo and Serbia, then it was renamed European Plan because it got support of all 27 member states. And that plan should somehow, how should I uh, put it, make possible uh, international coexistence of Kosovo and Serbia without necessarily mutual recognition. But, you know, it would be a mutual recognition in all except in name. And that is a very tricky political question because of the 
ambiguous way in which the war in 1999 ended. Kosovo, which was a province in Serbia, is not ruled by Serbia for 24 years. In the meantime, it declared independence in 2008. But then the problem is that half of the UN member states have not recognized it, including uh, Russia and China with veto power in UN, and also five members of the EU have not recognized Kosovo, and that makes complicated any progress in relations between Kosovo and Europe and its, how should I say, international existence. So now those tensions, they have to do with this make or break moment and it's i think positioning of both sides that's why the problems of the north of kosovo were very obvious in 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 the last six months because that's the part of kosovo which is actually linked to serbia geographically and it's populated by serbs who basically don't want to be part of independent kosovo but you know, that's the situation. And it's somehow a, a fight over who controls this region. Concerning this particular statement by President Osmani, I must say I, I've not seen any confirmation about uh, R- Russian presence and the presence of the Wagner group in uh, this part of Kosovo. Although We are hearing different rumors. And, you know, I think since there is at least a very strong political tension and occasionally tensions on the ground with conflicts between police and local population, barricades that have been erected in this part. In such a context, you know, politicians need to uh, spin the reality and to, uh, in this case, I think, uh, insist perhaps too much on the parallels between uh, Ukraine war and what happens in Serbia-Kosovo relations. It's an attempt to to benefit from the parallels that can be made between Russia and uh, Serbia and to portray Serbia as a Russian ally, which then can bring some advantages to Kosovo. But apart from politician statements, not too many indicators of the real presence there. Do you think armed conflict could start again in the Balkans in the near future? For a number of years, we all believe that it's totally over and that nothing of that kind cannot happen again. And I was one of those who believed that it's inimaginable to have a conflict in those places where it was really difficult and bloody in the 90s, like Bosnia or Kosovo. Nowadays, I I think this perception is slightly different in the sense that you can imagine some limited violence and that big instability is imaginable. I don't think that the war is possible. Nothing similar to happened in the 90s, because there is simply no capacity for that. The war of the kind that we see today in Ukraine or something similar to the wars in Bosnia, Croatia and Kosovo in the 90s is not imaginable. But, you know, violence, loss of life in in different incidents 
that can escalate quickly and go into wrong direction, that's possible because the situation is hot. There are different hotspots there, as I said. So diplomatic uh, initiatives should prevent that. It seems like another key moment in Serbia's history to come back to your, your documentary. You graduated in 1989 at a key moment in Serbian and European history. What would you say to Serbian young people who are graduating now at this new key moment in European history? But my documentary was in a way, how should I say, an uh, encounter with my generation and with the hopes and dreams of of a generation from 30 years ago, high school generation from 30 years ago. But it was also an intergenerational dialogue because quickly in the production I realized that we need somehow to address our own children and uh, to understand how they perceive the situation. And that's why also kind of narrative key to tell the story was also dialogue not only with people from my generation, but with their children and with my daughter who grows up here in Belgium, in Brussels, who doesn't have uh, any profound experience and knowledge of what it means to live in Serbia. It's just a country of her family. And those, uh, when I spoke with uh, with young people there, it's at the same time, how should I say, it's both inspirational, encouraging, but also somehow sad. Because, you know, every generation has its own chance. And in that sense, my documentary is not pessimistic. But, you know, it shows that young people today have their own chance. But I think that in a way it is more difficult for them to see the path towards the better future because back in our time it seemed that there is a just one single solution. We should change the bad government inherited from the you know socialist communist time that has started and conducted the war and everything will be fine. Today there is no such a magic solution. The reality is much more complex. The places we were looking at as role models in Europe, US as, you know, models of stable, mature democracies don't look so stable and mature today. So they have less, you know, models in front of them. And in that sense, they live easier life because there there is no violence, the uh, people are not losing lives uh, and so on. But it's, I think, more difficult for them to formulate what they want for their society. And when I look at the young generation, the phenomenon is leaving the country and there is a phenomenon of depopulation. And as one of my friends there say, they see themselves only temporarily there and their future not necessarily in the place they were born. What did your daughter think of the documentary? I think my daughter participated in the documentary with the level of enthusiasm that you could expect from teenager. So sometimes she she's 15 and soon 16. So at the time of filming she was 14 actually. 
So she was moderately enthusiastic. Uh, at the time, it was a bit boring to participate, as you can imagine, and to listen, uh, you know, the dad's stories and so on. I think my daughter, in the end, appreciated her participation in the documentary because through the production and her participation, she learned some things. And the fact, uh, I should maybe not spoil it to those who still want to see the film, but, you know, at the beginning of the film, she collects documents for to, to apply for a Serbian citizenship, and uh, at the end she does it. So she applies for a Serbian passport because she's a Belgian citizen, in fact. And that was not to make some patriotic statement, it's just to say what I felt during the documentary speaking with young people as well, that, you know, it's a universal thing that every generation has its own chance. And I saw it as like passing the, the, the button, as they say, to someone younger. And of course, in case of Serbia, it's also passing of the burden of uh, the recent history. But, you know, they should not be defined by that burden. They should create their own future. So you've been in Brussels now for almost 20 years. We've talked about how Serbia has changed. And through the lens of your film, we talked about how your generation has changed and how the young generation is looking at things. How have you seen things in Brussels change in that time? And are there any anecdotes about your work, your long experience as a correspondent here that you would like to share? Indeed, it's a long experience here, almost 20 years. Actually, I think by the end of this year, it will be 20 years that I have Brussels address. And, you know, of course, before that, I was also a journalist, and I think I still have some time before I retire. But this Brussels peri period is interesting because so many things changed, actually, in the nature of our work. It's the period actually even less than 20 years, that the technology of the work of a TV correspondent changed so much. So, you know, nowadays uh, you can easily feel as a dinosaur, you know, when you think about the ways we worked back uh, at the time. It was the period of the shift to digital technology. So I started with uh, tapes, with feed points, satellite feed points, where we had the, our slot and had to run at a certain given time to send our report, because otherwise it would be lost. And nowadays, of course, it's totally different. When I started, it was time before smartphones, before uh, social media. And as I say, before all digital technologies that we know today and consider so normal, in that sense, the work is more, uh, much more easy than it used to be because you can be much more autonomous and what you record with your uh, telephone is broadcast quality. And before, when I came here to Brussels, you need uh, a crew of two or three people to do the same thing. Dusham, thank you so much. That was very enlightening, very interesting. Thank you for your time. All the best to your daughter and any other future generations listening to this. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you.